Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Saul Searching here on the FYIZ podcast feed. I'm John, as always. And this time, my co-host is James Brown. Now, not the hardest working man in show business, James Brown. That would be a good get, though, because he is dead. But the uh, James Brown that I have on the show is very much alive and, um, you know, a very interesting guy. And we have a great episode to talk about. It's the penultimate episode of Better Call Saul as a series, the 12th episode of the sixth season called Waterworks, which is written and directed by series co-creator Vince Gilligan. So, uh, yeah, lots to talk about. And um, that's all I need to say. Here comes Saul Searching. Thank you, James, for joining me on this episode of Saul Searching. Yes, I'm thrilled to be here. I've, I've loved your podcast and I love this show. I knew I wanted to bring somebody new into the fold as a co-host for these final episodes. And this slot, episode 12 of 13, happened to be open. And um, I was trying to think of who would be good. And you tweeted something about Better Call Saul or you you liked something I tweeted about it. And I sort of added that to your dossier, which already included the facts that you live in my hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. And you are, you know, mutual friends with some of my favorite people from that place. Yep. And then also that you're a film buff and a big supporter of the local film festival, which of course I love. And so all those facts together made me go, oh, maybe this James Brown guy would be a good person to ask. And I reached out and you said yes. And here we are. Here we are. Yeah, it's great. But I do want to talk a little bit about that film buff status because you're even wearing the t-shirt. The uh, oh, yeah. Sidewalk Film Festival is a film festival run out of Birmingham, which is now going into its 24th year. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Been around since 1999. And what are the dates uh, this year? Oh, of course. Um, yeah. The, the So they have a, a full week leading up to the main weekend of, of the you know what you call festival weekend, I guess. Um, so it, it technically starts on the 22nd. Um, and then you have a big opening night on a Friday, which is the 26th. And you got, you know, 300 plus movies playing over the course of the 27th or the 28th um, and all the stuff that comes with a film festival. So it's getting pretty close. Yes, it is. Is there anything you're particularly excited about catching this year? Well, I mean, so everybody seems to be super excited about uh, it's a it's a doc that is the opening night film. Um I, I, and the na- the title escapes me, but it's about the the reading rainbow. Oh yeah, uh, I think it's called Butterfly in the Sky. And and it's it's bringing home a couple of Alabama filmmakers as well um, who did it. It's going to be a national release, but we get you know we got an early shot at it, and um, that's a, a big one that people are looking forward to. And honestly, because of my particular involvement in the film festival, that's one of the only movies I will get to see in its entirety. Um, I'm usually working from bell to bell the whole festival, and really don't get to see many movies. Um, but I can make recommendations. I, I kind of try and keep in tune. So how did you become associated with the, the festival in the first place? Um, I know you go way back with it. Yeah. And I know that I've seen you, for, just for example, a posting about there was an event that was like a bad movie night or something mm-hmm. that was like a, a thing. I don't know if you had just attended it or if you curated it or, or what, but that was like an <laughs> offshoot of the festival, right? Oh, I, I wish I, I wish I curated it. I was just a, I was a, I was a participant in, in a horrible, horrible experiment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, so I've been involved with the festival since year one. I had some ties to, uh, you know, back then the only way you could get a, you know, sort of an indie movie was just luck out if Blockbuster or some other movie, you know, rental tape place happened to have it, you know? And so sidewalk at the time was the only place you could see half the stuff that was showing that you'd see, you know, Siskel and Ebert talk about all these little indie films and things like that. You just couldn't, couldn't find it. And it was an outlet for short films, which I mean, when are you going to see a short film in Alabama in 1999? So um, I've been involved since the beginning. Um, uh, and, you know, my position as it is kind of just, uh, you know, put a lot of fires out, keep things running during the festival. I don't get paid uh, in money. Just, uh, you know, adoration, fan adoration. That's all I care about. <laughs> um, and beer, um, which is important. Um, but that that bad movie marathon that you looked at, yeah, I posted a lot about that. I was It was a fundraiser that they've done a, the last couple of years where they keep you locked in a theater for and keep you awake for as long as you can be awake, um, which, you know, 30 plus hours watching mostly terrible films. Um, and yeah, so you you saw those those pictures of me and, uh, spouting about that and yeah it was terrible absolutely terrible <laughs> well um let's uh i guess we can move from uh from from bad movies to a good tv show now um oh man 
we're now closer than we've ever been to the actual end of this thing, but also they're starting to do that thing that all shows do as they're wrapping things up. They're bringing things back. They're reminding you of things all over the place. So it's like even to call it Easter eggs isn't quite fair because it's like that's what this story has. It's done the same thing that Breaking Bad did in a sense, which is really do a good job of sticking to its central question. Like if Breaking Bad was like, how can this school teacher go to be a Scarface level drug lord? You know, this show is, and I always heard them say this in an interesting way, which is um, what problem is solved by becoming Saul Goodman? If you're Jimmy McGill, like what is the ultimate what is the ultimate thing that becoming Saul Goodman does for you? You know, yeah. And they definitely answered that question, and they definitely took uh, <laughs> their sweet time getting to the real answer to that question. This episode had a couple of things that sort of stuck out for me. Um, and, and on one hand, it almost seemed like an episode where it's going to sound strange. I know where not a ton happened. I mean, obviously there was, there was some things that, that, that are drawing us to a close. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, some of the most normal things that I've recall seeing in better call Saul or breaking bad for that matter, some of the most mundane, normal things happen in this episode that mm-hmm. I just don't recall happening in other, other episodes. Oh, I thought the potato salad worked out great. You think Yep. Huh. Looks like rain again. Yeah, it does. Oh, hey, they opened a new outback down on Satellite Beach. You want to go Friday? Sure. It's a date. Well, those mundane details especially seem like they're really bogging down Kim, who... I mean, it's just kind of painful to see her in a situation where she said, like earlier in the show, when she interviewed at Schweikert and Coakley, I believe, um, she said that she left home because she wanted more for herself. And she seems to be living the kind of less version of her life right now. And it's hard not to see that as like, uh, you know, an effect of being another person who's caught in the blast radius of Jimmy Miguel, even though we know that Kim fully owns her decisions and her decisions were her own. Right. We've been rewatching the show recently and we're almost at the end of season three. And there's so much along the way that's like, oh yeah, they've been, if you look at it now as this guy who keeps creating like messes into collateral damage for people around him, like it, they've, they've been telling us that story from the start, even as they've been telling us why maybe he's that way or what he's reacting to and even making a side with him a lot of the time against some right. of the people that he's being a bastard to. But ultimately, like whenever Chuck is breathlessly talking about how awful Jimmy is, he's usually right on the money about what Jimmy's doing. And whenever yeah. someone is defending Jimmy or he's, or it's like the situation is vindicating Jimmy, we as a viewer are usually able to know what, well, yeah, that person is right, but they don't know what Jimmy really did. Or the situation is not reflecting the full manipulations of what Jimmy did. So it's like, they've been telling us both all along to care about this guy and yeah. that that you shouldn't care about this guy or that caring about this guy would put you, if you, in real life, this guy would put you in peril if you cared about him, you know? <laughs> yeah. As, yeah, as we, as we, seen not only all along, but even new people that have been involved with him, you know, also, uh, you know, uh, seeing that uh, hit him in the face pretty strongly, unfortunately. Right. I also think that as we get close to the end of something like this, like this episode was written and directed by Vince Gilligan, who clearly is the creator of Breaking Bad, co-creator of the Saul Goodman character. Uh, yeah. Peter Gould is the guy who kind of created Saul. He He's writing and directing the next episode. So it's like, this is... This is where we find out, like, what were the writers trying to tell us about this character all along? It's like the question of what they think of Kim, what they think of Jimmy McGill. You know, that's that's what's happening now. So, right. like, you can look at this Vince Gilligan's effort in this episode. Uh, like, you know that he's taking into account so much of the history of this character and the world that he's created. So that opening scene with Saul bouncing the ball... Um, I, I love that it kind of calls back to season four with Jimmy in the cell phone store when he was so bored and he was bouncing the ball. But also it's like, it gives Vince Gilligan this chance to show us this version of Saul where we now see that the Saul persona is this like, is something he kind of uses to bludgeon the people around him away from his feelings, you know? Like right yeah. now he's being his worst because he's at his most hurt. I'm not so sure that Vince Gilligan likes Jimmy. Um, and 
only kept this show going for Cam. I mean, I'm not sure. Um, not only because of the things that he's, you know, putting him through, but because he's what he's showing us about Jimmy. And, you know, we, you know, going back to Breaking Bad, I mean, he kind of loves Saul, right? Um, and throughout this show, the only reason it's, it exists is because people love to watch him. And it, you, it's getting to the point where I'm just like, oh, man. His his decisions are terrible. I mean, they've always been terrible, but it, it's it's more obvious now than ever, right? As we get to the end, and and I'm I'm like I'm I'm not sure I'm supposed to like him at all, or even really enjoy his presence, right? Right. Which is kind of what I'm saying about like what these people really think of this character is is going to come to bear because, I mean, this is jumping ahead maybe to sort of final thoughts, but like yeah, um, I I feel like when I try to think about what's coming for this character, I kind of think, well, you know, they they are deciding right now whether this episode is meant to represent that, that low point that you're kind of talking about of like, this is the most toxic this character has ever seemed in a way. Um, like, is this the low point? Or is, you know, you know what I mean? Is this the bottom or is this and the foreshadowing? <laughs> right. Is this the sh- foreshadowing that there's no way out for this guy? Or is this the bottom? Because I think that yeah. the episode kind of ends with a moment that tells us he may have had a little bit of a reconnection with that side of him that says, what are you doing? Like, right. what is going on here? But the yeah. fact that it took him everything that it takes him up to that moment to reconnect with that is like, like you said, it's very damning of this character who we've kind of wanted to... Like, I almost feel like this episode is the one that really forces us to call into question the most. Right. Like, what, who have we been, who have we been siding with? Cheering for, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, because you had he, and I mean, it's great. It's great that the show has done this. I mean, in, in all practicality, he should have done that last week, right? He should have not followed this dude home. Um, you know, he should have called it off, called the cabbie, you know, whatever he was going to do. Um, and I think even last week's podcast touched on that too. Is I mean, you just assume that he's going to, you know, call off the dogs, right? And he doesn't do it. And I'm just, and then, and then the steps that he takes after that, you're just like, what in the world? Um, <laughs> he's a fucking idiot, you know, or he's so brilliant that we just can't, we can't see what his plan is. Well, I mean, there is this whole thing, like a lot of times these writers, like if you see Vince Gilligan interviewed, He'll talk about the character. Peter Gold will talk about the character. It'll be somewhat illuminating. They they don't tease much. They don't they don't reveal much at all. But they talk about it in this inquisitive way that I feel like sometimes they're trying to make you ask the right questions or at least know where their minds are. And right. he's saying exactly kind of what we're talking about. Like, I'm not sure how much I like Jimmy right now. Like, is this really who he is? Is this who he was all along? But this idea of um like, for instance, when he's in the house with the guy. And you see him reaching for the for the urn to s- possibly smash the guy's head to escape. Run free, Rusty. Well, I, I will say one funny thing about that moment when he's like up in the guy's loft, where he, yeah. you know the guy's like man cave loft type place where he's got his booze and his nice watches and his cigars and stuff. Um, he walks up and he says, "Hmm, a hat man," yeah, <laughs> because the guy right. has some nice like hats sitting there. But no, yeah. I think that I think that that that. Just you're just sitting there going, "What are you doing, Saul?" Like, find some way that doesn't potentially. Because once you've got a, a a living wake awake person in the house, it's suddenly this dangerous thing of like you're going to have to fight them or hurt them or potentially kill them. And and when he escapes that moment without having to do anything, you sort of feel relieved and you think, well, maybe he just would have conked him. But I, I would think, how would you know how hard to conk somebody who might be so drugged that it wouldn't be safe for them to get conked, you know, and maybe the right. cap, the, the, the cancer <laughs> medication? It's just like, it's such a bad situation to find yourself in. And he so readily goes to like the worst possible solution, which would be to brain the person. Right. Um, and then you think, well, we won't see him do anything that bad again. And then, you know, just a few <sighs> short scenes later, he's threatening deer... Dear old Carol Burnett, with with like murder, strangulation, like something out of a true crime, you know, series, something off of, you, you know, like this is a mundane, awful, if it, if that crime were committed, it would be the most like senseless, ugly crime ever. And I don't really think he's about to do it, but you also can tell that he's almost impulsively creating the sense that he's going to do it. It's like he's right. willing to threaten her that way, and you don't really know how much he's in control of what he might do at that moment. And it's like, is this the same guy that, you know, we used to like, that was so cute with old people <laughs> right. in the early seasons of Better Call Saul? Yeah, I know. His sitting there, uh, you know, just prior to this, waiting on the, uh, waiting on the call from, uh, from Jeff, you know, 
getting out of, uh, you know, getting him out of jail and all that kind of stuff. I mean, gosh, and that was a mess too. I still got questions about that, but um, it's, uh, you know, he knows what's going to happen. He, 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 uh, you know, he sort of foresees it. He knows the phone's going to ring, right? He knows everything that's going to happen. And yet he still makes it happen the way that it all turns out, which is he's threatening poor Marion um, with death. And it just doesn't, it, it doesn't make you really like him that much. Right. It's like, even if he doesn't mean it, if he's willing to do that, that if he's like twisting the, cause he twists the, he rips out the phone cable, which is a pretty like scary thing to do when you, you're just wanting him to just run. It's like, that's what you end up doing anyway. Just run, just run. The second the old lady seems to be on to you, that way you don't have to hurt her. Um, and then the audience will be relating to you in some way of like, oh, the, 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 the walls are closing in on Jimmy instead of it being like, Dude, what was that? Just the, call me crazy. Did you just threaten Carol Burnett with strangulation <laughs> because she had found out your identity after like t- selling her this whole line of bull? I mean, it was it was almost inevitable that that relationship would go that way because that's the most painful way for that to have gone. Because of that, course, because there is that whole world where he could have been like so often Jimmy really could have a friend or some or at least could be a warm person and be seen that way, right? Um, yeah, uh, but he like can't have friends. I mean, that's uh, maybe that's the moral of the story. He just can't have friends, especially at this point, right? Yeah. Which is maybe what makes his interaction with Kim painful to perceive from his point of view, and maybe even that scene in the Saul's office where he's being such a bastard. If you look at it as him trying to protect himself against the 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 loss he feels at Kim leaving his life, it's like not to say that that's the right way to handle it, but I'm sure we can all think of a time when we were not wanting an ex to see us as emotionally affected and we may have overplayed or been a little too cool or something. I mean, sure. this is an exaggerated version of it, sure. but like, it doesn't make it any less grotesque, it, but it's still rooted in a kind of human behavior to say, when he says, have a nice life, Kim, it's like, you know, he doesn't mean that. And she knows <laughs> right. he doesn't mean that. And she even stops and like has, has to decide not that it's pointless to try to talk to this asshole, you know? Yeah. I don't know that he would have normally called Francesca sweet cheeks in any other circumstance either. It was, it's just one of those, one of those things where he's, you know, biting the, you know, biting out of a reflex and, and, uh, because of his feelings. Um, that's also the meanest he's ever been to Francesca when he's like on the phone with her uh, talking yeah. about how she's not that essential or her work ethic sucks. And, and he even says like, well, uh, you know, when he's been stalling and then when he gets her on the phone, he says, what are you waiting for? Send her in. You know, it's just this whole, like, he's not even listening to himself. But again, that seems like that's the thing we must have known about Jimmy all along when we pictured him turning into Saul. Like, as this show went on into his third and fourth season, you were realizing that, oh, this is actually a tragedy that right. uh, that Jimmy McGill kind of loses the, the inner battle to this Saul persona. But we still always thought maybe there was the possibility that when he was getting behind closed doors, he was going, what the fuck am I doing? I'm, I'm, I can't be this guy. But it seems like when he was behind closed doors, it was like, He's fully, it's like it's calcified around him, this 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 persona that he's created. And I do think yeah. there's a kind of self-protectiveness in it that I still can see as the root of maybe there'll be some pathos in that. But right, it, it does seem like this episode's leaving us with, it's like they've now spent three episodes like increasing the the sense that that this guy has, that there's nothing that's going to turn him on the right path, you know? Yeah, it's, it's and it's unfortunate. Like we said, I mean, you know, you kind of love him, love the guy so much um, because of the the way he handles things, the way he talks to the the other lawyers, the way he handles his clients, the the you know, even the the loving nature which we've seen, the way he handles with Kim most of the time, sometimes Chuck. Um, you know, the we've seen all the good that he that he has, and he probably oh gosh, it's going back. You said it before. It goes back to Star Wars every yeah. time. <laughs> he's he's seeing the. There's still some know, good in him. <laughs> there is. Uh, I don't know exactly where in Darth Vader we are with him right this this second. I mean, it seems like we're kind of kind of getting there for, you know, that Return of the Jedi, Saul or Jimmy or whatever. I don't know. Well, you mentioned the him him waiting around the apartment waiting to hear from Jeff. It's like um, there is this. 
there is a little bit of Saul, there is a little bit of fun Saul in that moment. And the oh, fact yeah. that what he tells them, the, the kid is true, you know, he that he says, it. right, but he also, lo- he says you got the best defense, or I'm going to get you the best of, best attorney money, buy, whatever it's like. He's both implying himself, but also saying like, don't worry, you're not going to be in trouble here. And right. he's sort of confident in his ability to manipulate and wheedle the... Like wheel and deal the situation to the point where it needs to be, and even when he tip the thing he says to Marion that tips yeah. her off is him sort of sharing, like getting into that mode of being like, oh, and interestingly enough, because I really do think didn't he in the past say he had never been to Albuquerque? I think um, so. Yeah, when she was talking about Jeffy being there, and then he sort of says, not like in Albuquerque, and it just sort of clicks with her that not only did Gene get the call and not her, right, but that. Um, yes, wait a minute. This guy said he had never been to Albuquerque, and now he's acting like he knows all about specifically the way bail works in Albuquerque versus here, you know. It's enough to make you get online. Yeah, and she was already suspicious. It didn't help, yeah. Plus, he had given her the powers of searching on the internet, so she now knew what to do. Right. Um, yeah, I... It's, um... It's set us up in a way that I just, uh, I'm still not entirely sure that I, that I appreciate. I hopefully <laughs> I will, you know, it's, it's, it's been damaging to, to my feelings a little bit on how this has all gone down. Historically, they seem more likely to pay off something they've meticulously set up than they seem to hairpin turn with some crazy development. But the story of Jimmy, Saul, whatever, has been the story of someone who thinks their way out of problems in a strange way. He's La Cucaracha. I was saying to my wife the other day, it's like, I want the last episode to be all about La Cucaracha. Right. And I don't want it to end with this, you know, a metaphor, somebody stepping on a cockroach or whatever. I want it to be like, the. I want them to, like, I, I feel like it would almost be like a disappointingly moralistic tone if we get to the end of this story and it's always, and it's, well, crime doesn't pay, Jimmy McGill, if that's really the point of this whole thing. I'm sure they could pull it off in a satisfying way. I just feel like that's not what this story has been set up for. So even if he gets caught, even if he goes to prison, I'm sort of thinking their version of that story will have some sort of Pyrrhic victory or little little jab, something clever about it. I just don't see them going full on grim, even yeah. though they've paved the way for that so beautifully. So I really yeah. do think that last episode, it's like I said, it's either going to be the final piece of this super grim puzzle, or it's going to be the sort of, oh, this was a misdirect. And, and again, not to say that they've been doing anything that's like hiding any secret scam. I'm just right. saying that there'll be some angle on Jimmy maybe... If he does go to prison, maybe he'll find some way to do it on his own terms, or maybe there'll be some crazy montage in prison that takes us through five years, and then he gets out on some weird technicality, or you know what I mean? There's, yeah. there's, I'm open to there being some, still there being something hopeful about this story, uh, because of that, the fact that that was always part of it from the beginning. But as we've right. been saying, if these writers have decided to say, oh, what we want to reveal to you now is that you should never have liked this guy, right. that's, that's well <laughs> within their rights to do that, right. and I can't say they won't. Right. Yeah. And, you know, because the show is all about me and you, it's not about them. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I I still don't know if I want it to end with a, you know, sort of a an Ocean's Eleven wink. You know, somebody's yeah. in prison, but there's a wink or, or you know, like you, you see an out of sight or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I want that kind of thing. I don't know if I want him, you know, five, 10 years later, kind of, you know. Uh, where he's, you know, helping people, you know, learn the law in jail, you know, you know, all that, you know, the, the happy ending or whether he does something, one last thing chivalrous for Kim. I mean, there's a possibility that he helps her out somehow that we haven't seen with all her, you know, all that that she put into the wind. So I don't know. Um, what, what if her affidavit goes through and he sort of falls on the sword of saying it was all him or something like that? You know, right. I mean, I don't know. But the one thing I don't see this show doing just because of the tone of the show, I don't see them romanticizing prison in any way. So even if he does go to prison and it's not considered the worst, har- most horrible thing, I don't see them having too much fun with prison life. But any of those I things you just, any of those things you just mentioned, him teaching law in prison could be like uh, the way this show would execute it could be a really cool scene or a really cool moment that would make you feel like, well, that's a nice capper to this. But even sure. that still feels like I don't know. There's something about him in a prison. Or, <laughs> well, there's still, even 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 the 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 grim version of that ending though feels a little bit like a cheat to say like so that's what this whole that's what coming back to this character was all about was just to say. He's the saddest of them all. You know what I mean? Like I, that—that's fine. That just seems like an odd enterprise uh, of 
six seasons and seven years, whatever it's been, of story, just to get us to say, because you know, because Saul's exit from Breaking Bad was kind of like one of the more graceful ones in a way of like, here's a guy who seems to know when the when it's over and he gets out of town, right? And yeah. then like to say, no, let's come back to that guy and show that he can't leave it alone and he dies alone and tragically in prison. It's like, <laughs> that's that's fine. It just doesn't feel like that's what they, I, I, I keep saying that's not, the, that doesn't feel like the show I've been watching. And right. I know you can find evidence of like, that's exactly the show you've been watching. <laughs> right. So I feel funny saying that, but you seem to at least know what I mean, that like, I still feel like they have something up their sleeve that there'll be... It, it doesn't seem like any prediction I've heard really sounds like what they would do yet. He works in a Cinnabon in Anchorage, Alaska. <laughs> I know, I like that. It, it could set up a, a, another spinoff. Um, like uh, Jesse and the Bun Man. Where the river is winding Big nuggets they're finding Nug to Alaska The rush is all the way up You know, for, for a second there, when... Uh, kind of off topic but when when kim was at the airport and i saw you know you see the alaska Airlines sign for a second i thought wait is she in alaska i thought no this is not how they're gonna do it but you know <laughs> it got me super excited for this for a heartbeat you know well you know what's funny about that is it, it got you to thinking like is she in alaska is this what's <laughs> happening here but then what what that makes you think of is jesse who went to alaska right and then that to me it felt like they must know they're sort of making us think about jesse and then yeah. Jesse pops up later in the episode. Well, that's a good point. Let's do get to Kim here, since we yeah. are now seeing like the new version of Kim. She she doesn't have a new name. Uh, she's no. still Kim Wexler. I was surprised. But everything else seems like she does. You know, everything else feels like the Witness Protection Program or something. Like she's laying low. She's like vacuumed her personality out completely. <laughs> she she so yeah she. Uh, a scene with her, especially, you know, in the office, because and I'll I'll admit freely that up until COVID, uh, which will now date this podcast, but I will uh, aside from the episode. But, um, you know, I was working in that office. Um, that was my office. And uh, so all the joys that come along with it, you know, I saw reflected in this episode. Right. right. Um, she she had her her. Uh, her sort of excitement when she, uh, when they were asking her what ice cream she wanted, you know, she's like, you know, vanilla or strawberry. And she's like, well, they're both good. I was like, no, neither of those are good. Right. <laughs> um, but she was so, I guess, fakely, uh, you know, I don't know if she was excited in reality based on her life or not. Um, I even take that as like, she's so indecisive and I will make a case that vanilla is actually really good, but I, 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 I know <laughs> the right I mean. vanilla. Sure. Right. Yeah. But, but, um, and strawberry too, but that, let's not get sidetracked um, just because I'm hungry. <laughs> no, but the thing about that moment is too, it's like if you think about everything her her uh, boyfriend Alvin says to her is like a question that she throws back at him with a maybe so or what do you think? And here this woman comes saying, what kind of ice cream should we get? And she says, oh my God, they're both good. So she can't even make a choice about that. Uh, I saw where, uh, I don't know who it was associated with the show. Maybe it was Peter Gould or Vince Gilligan that, was, that described her character. I thought this was just such a great, um, where is it? Uh, She's trying so hard not to do harm that she's not doing anyone any good either. Oh, that's nice. That's where she is with her conscience. And it's like, when you think about that, it's like she won't even answer. She doesn't even want to tilt the ice cream choice one way or right. the other. Because somebody's going to be... Uh, well, because you know, it's like, I don't know. What do you think? And even when she gonna... sees the card, she's like, oh, this is cute. But she's like, she's not <laughs> offering too much of herself. But then after the phone call with Jimmy, which obviously is a major disruption to her day yeah. and her life, she sure. seems a little distant. Like the, you can tell that when they're singing Happy Birthday and the camera moves through the crowd. For one thing, the way, the evocation of an office environment, I think you're kind of alluding to it, having been in it. Like, yeah. it's like, it was so perfect. Like all the little routines, the woman asking for the the hole punch and the guy handing it to her, the Gosh, little yeah. backs and forths. Um, it's also believable. Uh, well, she was, but, she was Vic Mackey for a second, you know? Yeah, I don't know if no, you right. What. Yeah. yeah. So she, she was, I was like, God, maybe they'd work in the same office. That'd be a good show, right? Kim and Vic Mackey. Um, but like the fact that she, you can see it in her eyes when after the phone call that she's now feeling the cracks of this world. Like she's, she's, she's something he said kind of rattled her. It's like he called her bluff a little bit yeah. Um, by saying, well, what are you talking, why are you casting shade on my, the way I'm choosing to live when look at right. what you're doing, you know? Now, obviously she's doing something that's got a bit more integrity to it and a bit more like inter bit. Yeah. internal, like it's not, I don't know, maybe integrity is the wrong word for it, but like she's at least trying 
to live a normal life and stay on the straight and narrow, whatever you want to think of that. But again, I don't feel so moralistic about this world. So I'm looking at her as kind of diminished in this form, even though she's like, not that Jean is some kind of glorious form, but right. like, even if you look at Saul Goodman as a grotesque monster, you, you could say like the effort and the performance and the gusto it takes to do that, like... I don't know, Kim is putting her light under a bushel and she shouldn't be. And I think that like the only, the one thing Saul's doing that Kim's not doing that you might say you admire is he's going for it, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, as a character, not necessarily as a person who, like in the real world, you would definitely think Saul Goodman is just a, a toxic parasite and you would say, right. lock him away and throw away the key. But in, in, in terms of drama, we can say, okay, we see the character, the spark that's there, um, even though we see it now as kind of an ugly thing. I do think that yeah. we can see Kim now as having been, like she she does have, she's put her blinders on and she's she's she doesn't need to do that. Like she needs to find some way to come to terms with, with her own reality too. So like after talking to Jimmy, that's where she's at is, but she goes in a different direction than Jimmy. He throws himself into being bad and she throws herself into a almost very self-destructive way of trying to do the right thing. Gosh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it. yeah, and one of the more heartbreaking things we've seen on the show mm-hmm. so far. Um, for I mean, not just for her either. I mean, gosh, it was it was kind of terrible and kind of great. Um, how it how it all panned out with her. You um, mean visiting Cheryl? Yeah, yeah. No, that scene was incredible. Uh, and maybe we're jumping ahead, but yeah, I mean, that's um, you know, she. Um, yeah, I, it it. I don't know if that's what they wanted everybody to assume that the the. T- title of the episode was about or not um there was definitely definitely lots of water in the episode but um that mm-hmm. was a good a nice uh, on the head title for the show right well it's a it, waterworks feels like something and i bet it is somewhere in a, i bet jimmy's explaining how something's going to go to somebody and you're going to go back and do this. And then when they ask you this waterworks, I could just, I mean, maybe I'm imagining that, but I feel like there's been some scene where somebody has described like theatrically bursting into tears or having emotion in that way on the show. So like, it's a very kind of, I don't know, terse and sort of, um, you know, jokey way to refer to what happens to Kim, what Kim does on that tram, that's an incredibly emotional, gutting scene. I mean, I I've, I can think of a few scenes in movies where a character finally lets the weight of events hit them. Right. And you see them, and you kind of stay with them for a second. But that's one of the best versions of it, because you feel like if if you were uh, Ray Seahorn playing that moment, it's, I don't know, I can't only really imagine what you're thinking of, you know, whatever actors do. But like, yeah. if you think about Chuck and you think about Nacho and you think about Howard and you think about, I mean, you know, you can start thinking about just what the show has done. Even go back to Breaking Bad. Think about the trail of of carnage that has right. happened in this world. So I don't know. There's something about that moment that feels like, yes, we're we're, we're feeling the whole show uh, <laughs> every awful thing that's happened, we're kind of seeing it in that one moment. And the fact that we stay with her for so long, like, I don't really know what that means about where she goes from now. Like, I, I still am open to the notion that Kim has had some side of her kind of kicked into life by this, that she might start wanting something more uh, for herself again. But if there's this threat of, you know, pr- prosecution coming from Albuquerque, I mean, you just don't know what could happen in the next episode, whether that's where we leave Kim or whether yeah. there's a whole chunk of story to come with, you know, with what she said in motion this episode. Gosh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't even warn a guess anymore as to, as to what's next for, for her, really. I mean, Jimmy, it's fun. You know, it's kind of, it's interesting and fun, but for her, I, it's, um, you know, kind of got your, your heart broken and the, the rug pulled out on the end. And she, she, I think, tried to do her best um, to to relieve herself of uh, what all was in her head. Um, I don't know if it's going to be good enough to keep her out of, out of jail or not, or or some sort of you know punishment. What I found so devastating about that moment was, you know, we we were already thinking this perhaps about Howard, but I, I jotted down some of Cheryl's lines in this in this scene that just really got to me. She says to Kim that uh, the lies you two made up, the picture you painted, that that's all there is now. That's all anybody remembers about him. Uh and it's like that's the I mean, that's the that makes Howard one of the saddest figures on the show. And rewatching the show, the way he's like you know, sometimes he's the bad guy and sometimes he's trying to do what's right, but he, right. in the end, is one of the more um, 
you know, flawed but human characters on the show that like that the detail that we find out that he was in therapy to me tells me kind of all I need to know about the fact that this guy was not the worst of the worst, but he was maybe the one who was trying the hardest <laughs> to like uh-huh. deal with his baggage. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, it, it, and and I think y'all touched on this in the last uh, podcast too. But yeah, he he was. Um, when you look at him in hindsight, which is all you can do, um, he, whether he made all the right decisions maybe not he was doing it for the right reasons it seemed like he was never he never had any of that sort of it was never any true vengeance or anything that he was he was out for it didn't seem you know looking back um he may have you know had some of that petty stuff going on that happens in a lot of interpersonal relationships and business and everything else yeah. but it it was never nearly as deep or as as uh, shifty as everybody else was doing around him right, right. Um, and yeah, so it is, it's, it's very, it's sad. The, the guy with the best smile on the whole show is, you know, the one that, the one that got the most shit, had to eat the most shit, I guess is what yeah. you want to say, right? Right. Well, it's um, funny. He did have kind of a shit eating grin. So it's a funny, uh, it's a funny way to approach that idea. No, but I, I, I think that this scene told me too, that when there's not a lot to be done about it, like what would Cheryl even want? Like now she knows, but there's something about that, like the idea of knowing and it's in a document and it's kind of locked away somewhere, it's in a drawer, something might happen with it. Like that's a little uh, bomb that could go off in Kim's life and in Cheryl's life. And Cheryl even made a few threats about like, you know, I could sue you in civil court and all that stuff. But you wonder what would really come of it that like part of what you would want to do is no. I don't know. It's hard to imagine that being where that story ends, but they did sort of set up the idea that it could be like one of those, just a little philosophical uh, kind of a mind fuck to say, well, now everybody knows the truth, but there's nothing that can happen because of that. And what, to your point, if Kim's the only person that could go down for this, we don't really want anything to happen, even though we know that she technically, What's again, I, well, this, this whole idea of comeuppance, I don't know. I guess that's something to get at with this show in general. Like, yeah. I feel like comeuppance happens all the time for these characters. I don't know if you remember the last episode of Seinfeld or if you watched that show. I did, but, yeah. But the last episode had a lot of fun with the idea that these characters had never paid for being awful people and now they were going to pay because there was a court case and they were bringing in character from the show. And it was very gimmicky. Right. And I mean, it was clever in a way, but it also didn't really feel like an episode of Seinfeld. And so no, it was kind of a all. strange ending to the show. But what bothered me about it was not the lack of jokes or, I mean, I laughed at certain things. I thought it was, you know, it was fun seeing a big different sort of episode. But what bothered me was that I felt like these characters, the whole point was they were constantly getting comeuppance for their actions and constantly making their lives worse. And like every episode of Seinfeld had some consequence, you know, had some ending where they were screwed out of something or they lost something. So to me, the notion of at the end, we need to see this character pay or these characters pay feels like, well, what show have we been watching? And I I feel like Jimmy McGill has been paying along the story. So I don't feel that there's this huge cosmic debt that he has to that he has to pay like for me to be satisfied i don't think like like i said the whole crime doesn't pay theme doesn't really resonate with me nearly as much as these other issues that are connected to it which is like that you can't escape your true nature and yeah. what does it take what does it mean to change for the better or the worse that to me is much more at issue now they can still come down on him and say as a character you know he's bad in these ways but i just i'm not relishing any like there's really none of these characters that I wanted to see go to prison, <laughs> you know, like yeah. Uh, even Mike, Gus, any of those characters, I just didn't picture that for them. So it, I just wonder if that's what's coming for Jimmy, or if it's all about consequences. Then yeah, if that's the same world we've been watching, where we're sort of supposed to admire um, that side of things. Because I'm, I'm saying this kind yeah. of in relation to Kim, I kind of admire Kim's moxie, and I don't think she has a scheme that's up her sleeve all this time. But I do think she's capable of thinking her way through to something more positive and you know maybe we'll get a snip maybe we'll get some view of a, a more positive outcome for kim uh and if jimmy can be part of that that could be the way that he quote unquote redeems himself but i'm i don't put i put that in quotes because i don't really think redemption that too feels like it's part of like a more moralistic storytelling that these people just haven't been doing it's been much more nuanced than than good guys or bad guys all along is there any world where what she did would have been for the benefit of Jimmy is, is kind of one of the things that stuck in the back of my head. Like she, and not just to sort of clear her conscience and everything else. Is there, 
is there somewhere where that would have been for his benefit as well? I mean, mm-hmm. I know, I, I know in a sense it could be, but by, by, because there's not any, you know, witnesses left and all that kind of stuff, except for him. And if he's on, you know, away, right. whatever. Well, she doesn't give him up. I do think it's significant that she doesn't say to Cheryl, I know he's alive. Um, True. And he's living under a fake name somewhere. She doesn't say that. She says, yeah. if he's alive or he may, if he's out there still, he's the only other right. witness to this. Right. But yeah, I was thinking about this, um, actually based on the way that Cheryl, at the end of the scene, asks Kim, why are you doing this? You know, after Kim says, well, the the prosecutor's probably going to really consider this. The affidavit may just sit there. No one may pursue this because there's not enough evidence. And, and Cheryl's like, well, why are you doing this then? And we see Kim kind of think for a second, and then it cuts away to her leaving. So we don't really see how she answers Cheryl. Now, we can assume she gives her some ordinary answer like, oh, I just wanted to do the right thing, or I was feeling sorry. But the fact that we don't see Kim's answer means that we get to kind of think about that question. And, you know, why are you doing this? Um, I, I think it seems obvious that Kim, as always, is doing something according to her own code and for her own reasons. But I also think it's somewhat obvious that Kim could be driven to do something that might help Jimmy. And if naming him as a witness on this affidavit to this crime, that there may be pressure to, to pursue this and to, to clear this up because of, you know, Howard's reputation is at stake and Cheryl or Clifford Maine, who knows, might get involved in trying to push this forward. So this idea that Jimmy would have a little bit of a bargaining chip if he came forward or turned himself in because he might be more valuable as a witness uh, in that, case than he really would be in the Heisenberg deal, where we have learned that he's basically the last person standing and therefore can't really turn anybody in. So, you know, could the could the the lawyer of a, of a drug kingpin turn himself in um, because he has information about a, a, a case that the state wants to pursue? It, it seems like it's possible. And I don't know, when I think about that question, why are you doing this? I, I think, yes, Kim's doing it for the right reasons, but maybe this, you know, gives Jimmy that tiny bargaining chip that he wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I didn't even really think about it that way. I mean, the, you know, the answer as far as Cheryl's concerned is never going to make any difference as we've learned. I mean, it doesn't matter, doesn't matter what she says. Um, it doesn't change anything from her perspective. It doesn't change, uh, what happened to Howard. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't think about it the way you described. And yeah, you could be completely right that that's, um, that, that there were things working back there that, and that we may find out or we may not, but they may have been working nonetheless. Another thing about being back in Albuquerque that was really impactful for me. Um, and it was a slight contrast to last time, which was, it was so interesting seeing Francesca in Albuquerque in that black and white post breaking bad world, Yeah, you know, looking over her shoulder it was a window into that world that was that was really cool to see. But it was extra poignant to see Kim back in Albuquerque because it made me feel that feeling you have sometimes when you go back to a place and your connection to it has changed or the people you knew there have gone away. And it's just not the same thing. Yeah. And it's literally like the, the color has gone out of the place for you on, on some level. Um, and I don't know what's sadder about that, the idea that you go to a place and you'll always kind of feel the shadow of what happened there before, or that you can go to a place and maybe not feel it and just feel how much life has moved on. And so, yeah, that, that epilogue kind of feeling really got to me with Kim, you know, seeing Mike's empty parking lot, uh, attendant booth, you know, so much happened to that guy after he left that job and oh, gosh. Kim being back in the courthouse and, you know, getting that idea that maybe you leave and somebody takes your place. I found all of that stuff very uh, emotionally effective. Well, I mean, they, they've they've obviously moved on, not yeah. only with with that, but you know, I know they, you know, it was pretty obvious what they did with the other, you know, the young lady attorney that was yeah. there with the same hair. Yeah, the, the power ponytail. I made a note of that. Yeah, the power ponytail, even being the same color as Kim's, I thought was a pretty nice touch, and not just having her be a, you know, blonde and what have you. You mean of Kim's current hair? You're right. That's Kim's a, current hair, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so you know, all that you know, they were making it obvious that, that things had moved on, but were also the same, um, except for, uh, uh, what's the, uh, uh, the attorney that's now the defense attorney. Oh, Oakley. Um, that's the new Saul. <laughs> Oakley, yeah, right. So, you know, the, they, they have changed, but they've remained the same in some respect. Um, I'll take a show about him. If that's the only way we can keep the, 
you know, right. <laughs> keep this goal going. But, um, you know, the, the bad coffee and everything else, um, it's still there, but yeah, they've obviously, it's kind of traumatized, um, Albuquerque in a sense, I'm sure. So we can agree that there's really not a whole lot left in, uh, Albuquerque for Kim that's positive, uh, if at all. But do you think she's that interested in going back to Titusville, Florida either? Like, is she excited about more yep, yep, yep sex and conversations about mayonnaise? What kind of grocery store only has Dukes and Miracle Whip? That's what I want to know. That's <laughs> Okay, I, you know, let's do this. I have a favorite mayo. I was realizing that I have this opinion. Miracle Whip, which is not technically mayo, is also, it is too sweet. Like, it might be fine in certain things, but it is too sweet. Might have made a good potato salad or whatever, right. but yeah. Or tuna salad or whatever she was making. Yeah. And then Dukes. To me, was not the one I grew up with. I'm fine no. with Dukes, but it's a little tangy. I'm a Hellman's guy. I grew sure. up with Hellman's around the house, but I know that people that don't like Hellman's say that Hellman's is too greasy. So I feel like that's what you need to know, folks out there. If you're not a mayonnaise person, <laughs> and if you're not a mayonnaise person, you've already vomited at this last tangent. But uh, right. uh, Miracle Whip too sweet, uh, Hellman's too greasy, Dukes too it's tangy. Too tangy. Yeah, right. somewhere in you can figure out what your poison is when it comes to how you want to add moisture to a sandwich. But I think that also kind of just shows what kind of bonehead this guy was. In that you know he went to the grocery store, they didn't have Dukes, and he just he didn't pick another mayonnaise. Right. Like, or he was so devoted to that that he's like, well. Fuck it, I'm not picking any other mayonnaise. I'm picking something else that's not mayonnaise, and it's you know it's going to be fine. That kind of cracked me up. Also, what cracked me up about him is something that I've I've I think I've I've been in his position even as a dating man way back when, of sitting down and and really enjoying the Amazing Race and dreaming about being my partner being on the Amazing Race and then realizing it's probably never going to happen. Right. Because of their not because of my physical attributes, but because of my partner's. Uh, you know, unwillingness to even really give it the time of day, right? Right. <laughs> um, not being nearly as enthusiastic as I am about the about the Amazing Race. But. That was so funny to me that whole conversation because it felt so real. Even if you're not that, I mean, like there is a painful banality to this world that Kim is in. But right. Vince Gilligan has even in interviews been careful to say he's not making fun of normal folks. He's not saying that working at a sprinkler company would be a bad thing. Oh, those were all me. He's not saying that Alvin is a bad guy. You know what I mean? He's like, he's saying that for Kim, we know that all the stuff I was saying before, that we know she's hiding her light under a bushel. Yeah. We know that she's not being herself and being true to herself, especially when she won't express an opinion about anything. I mean, that feels like Kim performing a character almost as much as Saul as a character. Yeah. Um, it's just in such a different direction. But yeah, I feel like I feel like it's even significant that she's using an electric toothbrush. There have been so many scenes of Kim brushing her teeth. <laughs> right. I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah, I just know well, that it's different and it feels more suburban and it feels more settled in to kind of a drony existence. And so like, yes, the conversation about Amazing Race or whatever's going on, Alvin's seems like a good guy, but it is the most banal small talk. Well, and so, you know, and that goes, I, I mentioned that at the beginning, this felt like a lot of the most normal things that have ever happened in one of these episodes were because of them showing this app, but they didn't let it. And this is the one note that I sort of underlined to myself, like they didn't let it end with just Kim. So there was something that happened that made me laugh almost as much as anything in the series has so far. And it was, so let's figure out which it is. I guess it's Gene, right? He's going to he's going to uh, Marion's house and he's singing, um, you know, singing the Debbie Harry, singing the Titus High. Yes, yes. And he comes in. He he starts singing the chorus at the wrong time and then stops and realizes he thinks there's more chorus and there's actually part of a verse or whatever, and he has to wait. Right. And and so you know, I cracked up at that because who who hasn't done that, right? Especially when they have people in the car with you and then you're yeah. embarrassed and all that. But I thought did. Was that written that way? Was he doing that? Did it happen that way? Was it organic? Was it the real thing? And so then, of course, after that happened, and I got a good chuckle out of it, I had to pause. And I thought, well, wait, did they do that on purpose? Or was that was that just one of those things that happened? Because, again, some some of the, uh, the normal, the banality and whatever of real life. I kind of hope they didn't write it that way, but I, who knows? Well, I mean, it's almost like him saying, hmm, a hat man, too. You wonder, was that just Bob Odenkirk? <laughs> feeling his oats and being knowing yeah. this character like yeah. it, was it was it in script uh Saul or Gene sings along to Titus High on the way to Marion's and then Bob Odenkirk was the one who realized how to make that funny because I right. mean Bob Odenkirk is for one thing he's pretty famously a bad singer and they use that opportunity <laughs> they use that on the show whenever they can so the fact right. that he's singing badly but I think even if it's written or not the notion that yes 
you don't you're coming in at the wrong time you don't quite know what you don't quite know what part this like it does indicate a slight little skip in the record maybe for for him as a as a person but he's so happy he thinks he's got it all sewn up he even kind of seems like he's taken pleasure in the fact that he knows how to fix things for Jeffy yeah. and he doesn't he's not worried at all about Marion you know he's not he's not viewing her as a problem or even a potential problem at that moment so when he yeah. goes over there and he hears the commercial uh, it's this whole switcheroo for his character where he goes into this different mode. Right. The visuals are really cool in that moment too, because we are looking at a close up of uh, Gene's face and we see in the reflection of his glasses, uh, Marion's laptop screen where she's watching the Saul commercials and it's in color. Yes. And I went back to the first, cause I thought, wait, didn't Gene watch a couple of Saul commercials in his crappy little apartment in the first right, Gene scene in the beginning of the show. I went he back did. and watched that moment. And right before it cuts away, you can see a little flicker of color in his glasses. So it's not the same exact angle, not the same shot. Like it really is like just a flicker as it goes to black. And so I was like, wow, so they really weren't hitting it too hard. It tells you something about what Saul represents to Gene, you know, that like that really is the only thing. It wasn't that when he talked to Kim, things went into color. Yeah. It's not when he sees money that things turn into color. It's when Saul Goodman in particular is in front of him that Gene has a little little bit of color in his life, and which I think is sad for all the reasons we've been talking about what Saul represents. And this is not necessarily where you were going with this, but did, did you happen to notice that Vince Gilligan directed that one as well? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of... Uh, you know, I, I like to see that, that he would use that again. And, and not since. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. I did notice that. I, I At the time, you know, when you're watching it bleary-eyed at, at 10 a little bit, you're like, I don't know what to think of that. But yeah, it's exactly right. It's a nice callback, too, that, that I didn't realize. Before the thing turns with Marion, he really is trying to fix a problem. He really is trying yeah. to. And I will say, if there's anything that maybe still works in his karmic like favor, is that whatever you say about Saul Goodman... He was, I still think there is that version of the show where they could have played with the sort of broken nobility of being the defense for people for whom there is no defense, being the defense for people whom nobody in society is going to give one crap about. You know, there is still that, that waiting room full of people that we see in that hellish scene where he calls uh, Francesca sweet cheeks and everything. Right. We still, we still know he probably gets most of those people off with yeah. the lightest sentence, you know what I mean? Or with yeah. whatever the easiest. So there is something about Jimmy the problem solver that I, I, I do wonder if maybe that's one of the tiny little... Uh, uh, you know, indications of something because he did seem to be taking pleasure in in being Saul for a second. You know, taking that call and having the the banter about here's here's what's going to happen. You know, right. um, but yeah, but nearly strangling uh, Carol Burnett, you still it's still hard to get past that. I know. Well, and now you got me thinking though that that whole you know the whole hiccup with the Titus Hive was completely written in there and and is is just another example of them showing his little breakdowns and whatever else. Like, and that's, that's genius on their part, you know, for doing that kind of thing. Cause it seems sort of, you know, completely organic as a person, right? Well, it also, I like how this, this is something that was obviously them thinking of me. I always have a moment of trying to decide what the outro song for one of these podcasts is. And they <laughs> typically, every episode they give an obvious, you know, there's something obvious in the episode. A cue. We should talk a little bit about the scene between Jesse and Kim. I mean, we've addressed the awful scene that happens in in Saul's office and the way he treats her and just the way yeah. she kind of backs away going, all right, I'm, I'm not going to get through to this asshole, so I'm just going to leave. Um, but uh, yeah, like, what did you make of that moment? Like, I, I thought it was an interesting, I thought the re second time through, I noticed how cleverly the, the, the camera move reveals that Jesse's kind of standing down there and there's this whole thing. It suddenly becomes perfect because Kim yeah. smoking a cigarette is a theme of this show, how she, where she is in her life, where she's smoking, how she's smoking it. Like this smoking as the rain pours down, it was so film noir. It was so, it was just such a pure- It was the waterworks. Yeah, well, in a way it was. And also <laughs> then, you know, it, it's like, okay, as, as thrilling as it was to see that moment from Breaking Bad kind of doubled on- I like this one better, I think. This is like a great Jesse yeah. scene. And like, honestly, to come to this moment where, I mean, like this question, like it, this is that noir question. You know, you constantly have like the, that question come up about somebody, a character talking about somebody who's gone or talking about a character that's from their past. When, Jess, when Jesse says, this guy, any good? That's such a direct question. We've been talking about that half of this podcast. Is this right. guy any good? 
And yeah. when she says, I mean, you're sitting there going, what's the response going to be? Like, how is this show <laughs> with all these clever lines they've had and the ways they avoid doing the obvious and being corny, how are they going to handle this? And I just felt like this was like the most tough as nails, like femme fatale kind of moment where she says, when I knew him, he was, as she pulls her hood up yeah. and like- And then walks off. And then walks off into the rain. Yeah. And like, as far as we know, that's it. Like, that's the last moment we may see Kim. I mean, again, I right. still think she's coming back, but that's a great exit from the world of Saul for yeah. this character. She um, easily- it, 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 it could have been much less poetic. I mean, she could have said, yeah, I mean, you know, he, yeah, he'll probably, you know, he'll probably get you off or whatever, you know, I mean, she could have just said the reality, which is also yeah. true, but not nearly as poetic, especially in the atmosphere that you were in with the, uh, you know, the noir, the noir setting. So yeah, it was great. Yeah, when I knew him, he was because that tells you something about like I'm not vouching for the 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 Cretan I just saw in there, but the Jimmy I know, yeah. But also, she's kind of saying like I don't know him anymore. Like that's another way of her closing the book on on right. him. And again, it feels like a, a it feels like if you're going to bring Jesse back, it feels like a moment that might have happened that fits in with. I mean, it fits perfectly in with the way that Jesse brings Saul up when he suggests him to Walt. Is that like he's had this association with him? You know, um, I don't know. I just, and also, yeah, clearly Aaron Paul is having a blast. Like I heard where he <laughs> said that just get, once he got that, that like baggy hoodie on, he just, it just becomes natural for him, you know, but also supposedly that was nine hours of smoking clove cigarettes with water uh, showering down on him. And the, 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 that's where Vince Gilligan said he really admires the, the stamina of actors for. Can't imagine smoking clove cigarettes that long. And I, I've smoked a few. Gosh, I can't imagine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's, that's great. Well, and, and that's, I mean, that's a whole nother thing. I mean, you know, her, that scene takes nine hours or, or his, you know, those, I don't know if they were always together during that nine hours. And then, you know, I read somewhere that her scene on the bus was two takes, yeah. um, which, you know, it's, it's filmmaking and whatever, but still it's, it's kind of crazy how you can get, um, that, uh, those particular emotions and those particular scenes, um, well, I guess it's a waterwork, different kind of waterworks in both. Yeah. It's wild. Well, I even heard where he said that they did use the second take. Uh, so it's did like, they? I, I, he said, first one was terrible. First one was great. We did a second one, but if it makes you feel any better, Ray, we, we did use the second one, you know, but I also, that the, the woman sitting next to her on the bus, um, who comforts Kim is, I believe, uh, Vince Gilligan's longtime, uh, a uh, significant other. Yeah, I saw uh, that pop up on the internet with with uh, her in that scene and her in a scene with uh, Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad. That was a quick internet get. I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, I guess that the only other things I wanted to just point out some funny details. I thought the cops were pretty funny. That right. They're starting off with the look at this bullshit. It's like, and you think they might be talking about Jeffy, but you realize how completely checked out they are to anything that's going on. Yeah. It's yet another thing that makes Jeffy's actions and Gene's actions self-destructive. Right. What was he doing? If Gene had left when he could have left, the cops weren't there yet. If right. Jeffy had smoothly pulled away, nothing would have come of that. Gene would have seen the cops and would have probably, you know, he would have snuck out or something, but it wouldn't have been this disaster that it was. But the fact that Jeffy's nerves get the best of him, and I think he just tries to gun it on fresh snow and and skids across. It's like that was one of those moments of stupidity that reminded me of um, the dude on Breaking Bad who, like, rabbits when he sees the guys that Saul has sent over. It's like Ted, oh, yeah. who like falls and hits his head and ends up, <laughs> right. you know, paralyzed yeah. or whatever. And it's right. like the dumbest attempt to run, he immediately slips on or yes. oranges or something. Anyway, yeah. I, I I thought of that when I when I saw Jeffy, uh, Ted. you know, barely make it across the intersection where it's like, yeah. oh, Jeffy, just, just go slowly and ease out. And the cops would not have, you know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those situations where it goes wrong because of really bad human judgment. And yeah, Gene going back upstairs, we kind of covered the the way that scene played out, but that was one of those nerve-wracking moments where you're going, what the fuck are you doing? Do you do you want to get caught? Like, are you determined to ruin this? Because it's because of stealing the watches and even breaking the window, everything he did is what made this look like a robbery when the whole, the whole point behind this plan they had was to make it not look like a robbery until months later right. when the guys wouldn't know when their information had gotten stolen, you know? Yeah. And, and yeah, the recklessness, the recklessness really got to me the last two episodes and it, it, you know, gave me some anxiety and um, kind of made me not trust how things were playing out. But when you look at it in the big picture, I still 
completely trust what's happening. <laughs> Depending on what the writers think of Jimmy Miguel. Right. Then, <laughs> Again. What we get next is either going to be the fun version or the unfun version, you know? And it's like, it, right now it's feeling very unfun. Yeah. Um, but I do believe they could have it in their plan to sort of have a last episode that recontextualizes some of the things that we're beginning to feel. So it's like, like I said, it really comes down to that. Was this episode the bottom or was this the foreshadowing that there's no, that there is nothing but bottom uh, for this guy? Yeah. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. (laughs) He makes a good looking cinnamon roll. I will say that. Yeah. Yeah. He should have stopped there. Yeah. Right. The tide is high, James, um, and so we should be moving on. Do you want people to find you online? Do you want to send people to you on Twitter? Or you just want to be a private citizen? No, I'm, I'm the biggest cheerleader for the film festival, which we've already talked about. And I am, you know, people are welcome to find me as liquefied on, that's L-I-Q-U-I-F-R-I-E-D, not spelled really correctly, but I came up with that name, liquefied. On Twitter, I think I'm that way on Instagram too, but I have nothing to promote. And if you follow me, all you will see is sidewalk stuff. Well, I'm glad you're alive. As far as evidence that Kim's soul has completely left her body, um, I took the liberty of uh, freezing the screen and copying down what she was typing into the the website for the sprinkler business. Yeah, uh, it's a product description, and I just wanted to read this sentence. Okay, low cost per foot. Our ASTM F878 compliant Flow Chief family of products heralds an exciting new chapter in PEX tubing. <laughs> that might be what actually sent her over the edge. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't Jimmy's call. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think that would probably send anybody over the edge. An exciting new chapter in PEX tubing. <laughs> <laughs>